The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm happy to be back here. I was thinking, I can't remember various venues that I've been to for uh, IMC. Uh, I remember one that was sort of up in the hills. Or, is, is that right? Yeah. Uh, this is going back over a long period of time. Uh, and so every year or two I end up here, and every time I'm here, the group is larger. Yeah. Do you have, is your uh, retreat center functioning yet? Wow, wow. That's great. Uh, I'm sure that absorbs a lot of energy. Uh, but it will also give back a lot of energy. And it's, it's really, it's terrific. I look forward to seeing it. I was thinking um, in the course of this week, uh, I had lunch with a friend, a woman by the name of Mickey Kashtan, who uh, teaches uh, what it's sort of a modality of peacemaking called nonviolent communication. Have people heard of that? Uh, and we had lunch because she had recently been to India uh, and working with uh, uh, Dalit or ex-untouchable, mostly Buddhists. Uh, And I wanted to know something about her experience because I've been going there for the last four or five years working with some of the same uh, people. Uh, Mostly I've been... uh, I have a circle of friends there uh, in Maharashtra, uh, in mostly in Mumbai, Pune, and Nagpur. Uh, and I've written about this, actually. Uh, there's a long piece in, in my book, The Bodhisattva's Embrace, and I brought some copies of that, if you would like to purchase one, uh, up by the, the donation box. Um, and mostly what I've been doing for the last number of years after having some uh, experience of uh, some of the breadth of that community and the sincerity of their, of their practice, uh, I've been going to a school called Nagaloka or the Nagarjuna Training Institute in Nagpur uh, which is a, uh, it's a kind of one year, they have a one year program for uh, young uh, people from all over India, from 22, 23 states. Uh, and they're all, they're kind of about the age of my own children. So they're in the slot of about 18 to 23 or 24. And what they learn is essentially the core of it is they learn meditation. Uh, This is not something that's been available 
to them, Buddhist meditation, uh, even though their families are uh, consider themselves Buddhists, but they're very few teachers. So they go to Nagaloka, and then twice a day they meditate much as we were just doing. Uh, it's a sitting meditation. Uh, it focuses... Uh, so the core practices are uh, mindfulness, uh, satipatthana, which is something you all practice, right? Uh, you're instructed in. And also uh, metta, uh, loving kindness. And these young people are taught the methods of these practice practices, and they're also taught how to lead them. Uh, and so every morning when I get up, when I go to the meditation hall, uh, and there, there are two of them. There's a men's hall and a women's hall. Uh, it's sometimes advisable to keep uh, really young people in a separate practice so, so that the hormones interfere less... Uh, less effectively than they might otherwise do. Uh, so I go to the men's, to the men's practice, and it's led by these uh, young guys uh, who are learning to present themselves, to speak. So along with meditation, they're taught basic Buddhism, and they're also given some overview of social thought, and some method of uh, methods of uh, social organizing, so that they can go back to their areas, which are mostly rural, and uh, be of use. Uh, first of all, be of use by just setting up meditation groups, and also to to do relief and social projects where that's called for. Uh, so I've been supporting students there. Uh, and uh, now, as this is in it's about its 10th year, uh, students who have graduated from this program, some of them have gone on to uh, university or to other kinds of professional training, uh, but they're putting their energy back into their communities, and so I've been trying to support some of those projects. Anyhow, this is a long preamble. Uh, talking with my friend Mickey, uh, very quickly we came to looking at the question of power. And power is a word I think that makes, certainly makes me and some of us uh, squirm. That it's like, Mm, we're not really supposed to talk about power. Uh, it's very un-Buddhist. Uh, and, uh, and yet, there's nothing in our lives that's apart from power in, in a very real sense. So her definition, she has a very clear uh, and broad definition that was useful uh, as we were talking, and 
Uh, that definition is uh, power is the capacity to mobilize resources to meet needs. Very straightforward. The capacity to mobilize resources to meet needs. Uh, of course, those of us with uh, certain kinds of critical minds uh, might ask, well, what are resources and what are needs? You know, and that can go on endlessly. But uh, if I lift my left arm, that's a manifestation of power. And even though I can't tell you all of the resources that have been brought to bear on this simple action, I'm well aware that there are physical and neurological resources that enable me to meet the need which I feel, uh, for whatever reason, to raise my arm at this moment. And now I will meet the need of putting it down because it's getting tired. Uh, So, mostly when we think about power, uh, we're thinking about what one might identify as external needs. Uh, We're thinking of uh, the power to somehow control our environment. So in that case, money is power, education is power, uh, the ability to uh, own and drive a car is power. Uh, We tend to think of that our health is power, our strength, then we can think about our position in society, which manifests a certain kind of power or lack of it. Uh, what Mickey was talking about, and I think this is some, somewhat at the core of her work, and I think it points to what's uh, brilliant about the work of my friends in India, is that they're very clearly identifying uh, that aside from these external dimensions of power, uh, what they're offering to these young people who come from circumstances where they feel relatively powerless is the first thing and the simplest thing to give them is what we might if we were going to make an artificial distinction, call internal power. And as I was thinking about that, so that's the, it's the, the power of spiritual practice, the power of meditation. It's also the power for better and worse of our beliefs and our ideologies. Uh, but uh, there's a very interesting 
way of reckoning with this in, in my tradition, in the Japanese Buddhist tradition, uh, which points to uh, the kind of impossibility of, of distinguishing between internal and external. So in Japanese Buddhism, there are schools of Buddhism that are considered uh, self-power schools. Joriki. Uh, Zen is nominally a self-power school. In other words, you know, and I'm I'm powering myself. I've got this engine revving up inside. And then the other school, which is uh, actually larger, uh, that you may know know of. Well, it's called uh, it's called uh, Tariki or other power. Uh, and so the Pure Land schools of Buddhism are considered other power where uh, it's about acknowledging that everything that we experience in life is a gift, uh, and they would say from the the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, uh, and that all you do is you just kind of surrender and align yourself with uh, with that gift. Uh, there's a little problem in the middle of that which has to do with the, uh, those words surrender or align yourself. Who is doing that? So really uh, to me there's this distinction of self-power and other power is not useful. Uh, if I think of my own if I think of if we Consider, if we went around the room, uh, every one of you got to this room. You got here this morning. You got here weeks or years ago. And I don't think there's very many of you who were born into a culture of meditation, and mysteriously you got here. You had to use your own feet and your car or the bus or train to literally get here, Uh, and then you had to sit down and uh, settle your mind. Uh, This is all... uh, the self-power side, perhaps. But the great mystery is, how on earth did you get here? What, what drew us here? I think of this all the time. You're like, What was it when I was in high school reading Chinese or Japanese poetry that resonated with me? And why, when I heard about Zen and Buddhism, did I think I had to do it? And to have the, uh, you know, the chutzpah to think I could do it. Uh, This is, in a sense, I think of this as the manifestation of other power, something beyond 
my understanding for which I am just grateful. So anyway, what I wanted to talk about a little bit is just thinking of uh, basic Buddhism as this manifestation of power. So if you think of the Four Noble Truths, the first is calls for the power of discernment just to see that our lives are marked with suffering. And because we have an ability to look into ourselves, to mobilize that resource and to analyze, we get to the second noble truth, which is uh, the cause of suffering. And that's variously described as clinging, attachment, uh, it's or desire, uh, but it's there are a lot of different manifestations to it. But uh, you could also define it as uh, this is what my wife tells me all the time. Uh, she says, you're suffering because you want things to be different from how they are. And uh, as much as I want to argue with her, <laughs> she wins that argument every time. Uh, so we have this power of discernment that's a resource, it's a mental resource that we bring to bear. The third noble truth is that uh, there is a way to be free. There is a way to be awake. And the fourth noble truth gives us, uh, which is the noble truth of the Eightfold Path, gives us a whole map and whole set of practices, uh, you could say. It gives you uh, a variety of resources that you can mobilize to meet the need of simply waking up. So you could call this uh, a path of power or a path to power. And I, I don't want to push this notion of power too much, but uh, this morning I'm just, I've, I've never spoken of it before, and this morning I'm just sort of playing with it to, uh, to explore. Uh, so that's the Four Noble Truths is one thing that uh, I, mean, I would say Buddhists it's one of two things that uh, Buddhists of every uh, stripe can agree on uh, the other dimension the other principle that I think is essential to what uh, we call Buddhism would be uh, the three treasures or the three gems and the ability to take refuge in them so that's to take refuge in Buddha take refuge in Dharma 
and take refuge in Sangha. Uh, and that's when people talk about uh, becoming Buddhists in some acknowledged or formal way, usually there's uh, some process of taking refuge. Uh, refuge, you know, means uh, I'm not sure that that's actually an accurate translation of what what the word originally was in uh, in Sanskrit, but I think it's relatively close, and it, you know, it, and here it means to flee again. Uh, uh, it, but it actually means return to, to return to what was originally ours, uh, the original wholeness of our life. So here it's broken down into three aspects, three sets of resources and three ways that we embody uh, what, what we're being taught. So uh, you could call uh, the Buddha treasure, uh, generally when we think of religion, we think of these figures like Buddhas or whatever as as external, but really I've been taught, and I suspect you have as well, to think of uh, Buddha as my own enlightened nature. In the Zen tradition, there's tremendous amount of literature and poetry uh, that boils down to the fact that this very body is Buddha. And that each being is a manifestation of Buddha. So to take refuge in Buddha is to return to uh, what Suzuki Roshi called one's true self or one's big self. Something that is already there and is covered up or obscure to us. So in order to manifest power, the resources that we, that we bring to bear are just removing that covering. It's simple. It's not having to develop, you know, yogic strengths and you know, the ability to sit here cross-legged for umpteen hours straight, it's actually just to remove this covering that prevents us from seeing ourselves. That's powerful. Uh, the second treasure is the Dharma treasure. And I think of the Dharma treasure as... Uh, it's, Dharma is sometimes translated as the teachings 
or it's the law. It's the way things are. It's kind of like uh, gravity. That's a Dharma treasure. You know, the way things are is what what goes up comes down. That's that's dharmic. Uh, but also dharmic is what goes down sooner or later comes up too. Um, so it's the ability as we are as it's it's the more precise mechanism of our practice as a resource. So one as as Buddhas we sit down. Once we sit down we have to do something. And what we are doing in is uh, in one way or another investigating the flow of our body mind. Whether we're looking at our body in a very minute and careful way, whether we're looking at uh, thought after thought, breath after breath, watching how a feeling arises and passes away. It's investigating the self in one fashion or another. And when we investigate the self, we see the self works according to certain basic rules, rules of impermanence, rules of interdependence, and we understand as we investigate this more widely that that actually everything that we encounter works that way. The whole universe and also every person, every person sitting around us, every person in the wide in the wide span of beings, uh, people we know, people we don't know. And that working is the expression of the Dharma. And of course it leads naturally to the third treasure, which is the Sangha treasure. Sangha has various uh, definitions. Uh, in the early uh, Pali teachings, the Buddha spoke of the fourfold Sangha, and there he was using Sangha as community of practitioners, and he spoke of the monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen. In certain cultures, that's the Sangha is used in a more technical way and uh, quite restrictive, I'm afraid, uh, as basically monks. Uh, the nuns are somehow, they're like in a different class. And the lay men and lay women, uh, their job is to make sure that the monks have food. Uh, and if, with, if, if they do this very well, then they can be reborn as a monk. Uh, good luck to you all. Uh, 
I don't think that's necessarily what the Buddha had in mind. Uh, Here we are, essentially, lay people. And we are all practicing. We're being Buddhas, practicing the Dharma in community. And it's one of the things that I love about coming here, is that even though we don't know each other, I'm not here that frequently, when I come here, I see familiar faces, uh, just as I do when I, I practice at Berkeley Zen Center, you, have create, you are creating sangha, which means in various ways you are learning to support yourselves by supporting each other. So you are mobilizing the resources of your humanity uh, to express uh, just the power of being alive, the joy of sharing this practice. And I think in the largest sense, and this is the way we talk about it in, and think about it uh, at Berkeley Zen Center, uh, think about Sangha as the community of all beings. So for me, when I think about uh, Buddhism, I mean, part of the reason that I'm drawn to India, well, first of all, it's, it's, I really like it there. It's really fascinating, and people are completely alive. But that's where, that's where Buddhism came from. Uh, I also I work in Burma. This is where many of our teachers uh, also learn the Dharma. And if we have some power and some opportunity, some resources to share with people who need it, we return it to the source. Uh, and that goes, that's true. The source, you could look at it in a very particular way, but the source is really just humanity. The extent that we live in a globalized world, culture, uh, we owe respect, we owe We owe, the op- we owe our ability to return gifts to people all over the world. If we did a really interesting thing, which we won't do, you know, and everybody took off all of your clothes right now in this room uh, and didn't look around, but actually just looked at the labels and the clothes, <laughs> you would see they come from all over the world. Uh, people made them. They made everything that we are wearing. Somebody put their labor into, and whether it was labor that was given freely 
or stolen or somewhere in between, we have, uh, we are the recipients of it. When you receive this gift, when I receive it, what do I give back? So I think to me, this, uh, this is the manifestation of, of power is uh, not just this power over to be able to extract resources cheaply, but it's also the power to return what we have been given in gratitude. And we begin by, first of all, having to acknowledge and experience the power that we have as individuals and expand, and that's what we're doing. That's one of the essential processes. We step back here. And then one of the things I've been talking about lately, so at Berkeley Zen Center, most, most Zen centers, when you, uh, when you leave the meditation hall, you, before leaving, you turn around and you bow to the altar and then you walk through as if you're going from one space of reality into the other. At Berkeley Zen Center, we do something a little different. We leave the, Zen, we leave the meditation hall and there's a, a door back of the room. We stand at that door and instead of turning and bowing to the Buddha, we put our hands and we give a little bow. We're standing facing the threshold. Give a little bow and just step over the threshold out of the hall. And the sort of symbolic meaning of that is I'm taking my meditation mind with me because this is the real purpose of our meditation. It's how to live. It's not how to enact some special state within this protected place. So the enactment of power, if you will, is the ability to, to really manifest our mindfulness, our collectedness, our connectedness within the world moment by moment. And I don't think there's any shortcut. The sitting meditation we do is a way of really bringing ourselves into focus. Uh, But we don't stop there. There has to be an offering back. So I think that's what I wanted to say uh, this morning. And we have a few minutes, I think, for, for question and answer. Uh, and uh, I welcome your questions or your comments. Let me just take a second to say that our, all of our teachers here speak to us on a Donna basis only, and there are no salaries for the staff or the speakers. And um, so if you want to show your appreciation today, there's a box next to the front door for the teacher, and I wrote his name out there next to it if you want to write a check. And um, there's also a box for maintenance of operations. Thank you. Thank you. So questions or comments? Yeah. 
I, I've just recently started participating in an Al-Anon group, which is, you know, so much talk of powerlessness. And just to get used to that, I was thinking you have, I, I, when you were speaking, that there's great power in powerlessness. Yeah. Right. So this powerlessness, when I was talking about this, the distinction in Japanese Buddhism between self-power and other power, I think that the... Uh, this other power is what they're talking about. I think it's pretty much the same thing as what you're talking about in Al-Anon. Uh, and what I would say is, uh, I really agree. There's, you cannot eliminate, whatever you want to call it, the mystery of one's ability to do it. And when one honors that. Uh, but uh, what is the... Is it the, what's the first uh, step? No, the sur- I'm thinking about the serenity prayer. Yes, yes. So, Acceptance. yeah, so, yeah, to, but it's the prayer, somebody, does somebody know it? Yeah. Yeah. The courage to change the things I can, and the Right, so right there, you have the complete integration of self and other power. You know, and you know, you better know the difference. Uh, even though, in an ultimate sense, they're not separable. So, thank you. Good luck. Yes. Are we on now? No. I think you are. Yeah. Great. I I was a little surprised to hear you say that there aren't many avenues for for young people in India to learn to meditate when Buddhism started there. Is there an explanation? Well, there are many explanations, but uh, uh, there were outside repressions of Buddhism. There were inside repressions of Buddhism, and there was also, I would say, one of the problems of any kind of organized religion of which Buddhism was, uh, it develops uh, a kind of institutional quality, and then a lot of the energy of any kind of institutional quality goes to having to support the institution. Uh, so it's maybe a little obscure, but gradually what evolved, instead of a practice that was for everybody, uh, and you see this in Japan, you see this in Thailand, you see this in, in all of the institutional Buddhist countries, uh, but not so much here, at least yet, uh, that basically... Uh, they had, you know, they had this big infrastructure, and they had to have. Uh, then they became fundraising operations, <laughs> so to speak. You know, they had to be able to support the monks, so everything is and support the temples, uh, and uh, that is not conducive to a kind of horizontal uh, sustenance. So that's another dimension of what happened there. Uh, but Buddhism has been pretty moribund in in the you know in the country of its birth, uh, 
and what you had, which was, which was radical in terms of rebirth, and I write about this in my book, um, a really remarkable man, B.R. Ambedkar, uh, in the first part of the 20th century, uh, who was a leader of the so-called untouchables, uh, and built a large social movement, and also felt he needed to provide a strong alternative to the caste system. Uh, and uh, after investigating all the religious traditions, he came to the conclusion that Buddhism was uh, indigenously Indian, and it was a natural, it was a highly rational system as he saw it. Uh, and in 1956, he converted, in, in Nagpur actually, uh, he converted to Buddhism publicly in front of 400,000 people. And then he turned around and offered the refuges to 400,000 people. And there were some other mass uh, refuges that happened around that time. Uh, and then three weeks later, he died. There was nothing nefarious about that. He was, he was very ill. Uh, and uh, so that process was incomplete. But there are millions and millions of people who consider themselves Buddhists in India now, but their access to teachings or places to practice are uh, limited. So that's a, a short, uh, short overview. We have maybe a couple more minutes if there's another question or comment. Well, I will be here for, I'll just be here for uh, a little while. I'm not running off. So if you had a, a personal question or a particular comment, you're happy to welcome you to come up and uh, talk with me. And... Uh, Hope you enjoy this. It's a really beautiful day. Is today the first day of fall? Yesterday. Wow. Yesterday? Oh, yesterday. Ah, well, anyway, enjoy the new season. Thank you.